This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Well, it is time for the preaching of God's Word. Let's open to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is where we will be this morning. Yesterday, I spent the first half of the day with our elders. And our elder meeting agendas are usually so full to the point that we just don't have the space for extended conversations kind of dream sessions about how God might want to work in and work through our church. And so that's what we took some time to do yesterday morning, is just open up space to talk long form together. And as we prepared for that, we began by reading four verses from Ephesians chapter 2. These verses are about the nature and the composition of the church. And then from these four verses... We listed 30 things that they taught us about the church. If you're wondering, that is one glorious truth about the church for about every one and a half Greek words that the Apostle Paul originally used to write that letter. And then we took another 10 minutes and we filled a whiteboard with 54 things that we love about our church. And we could have done 108 We could have kept going. We just had to move on because of time. These are men who love our church, and it wasn't hard to find over 50 things. In fact, we barely even broke. We just kept listing things that we love about our church. And I love to be with men. I love to be with people who love the church because I love the church. I never get tired of talking about the beauty and the glory and the potential of the church of Jesus Christ Because there is nothing else in all of creation like the church. But like anything, even with something that's so unique, that's so special, ordained and set out by God, even that, if we don't take a step back every once in a while and just sort of open up our gaze take a few steps back to widen the lens, we can reduce what is beautiful and glorious to something that is routine. If we don't do this regularly, church can just become to us what we do or where we go on Sundays, you know, when we don't have other plans. And so that's what we're doing in these few messages. We're spending four weeks calling this series The Lord's Day, paying particular attention to this, the Sunday morning gathering of God's people, but we are just taking a little time to talk with the church about the church. And you have to do that. It's like taking a drive out of the city, away from the lights to look up and see the stars and remember how much glory and beauty is there. So just four weeks with the church about the church. And what we started this by saying is that when we come together, when the church is gathered, it's not actually us who draws us here. It's not even one of us who leads us or a few of us who lead us. We are here to worship God 
following and being led by Christ. So we believe that God has drawn us and Jesus the Son leads us. That even is true. We looked at this the first week. It really is Jesus who sings the songs that are pleasing to God. It's Jesus who hears and receives the word. It's Jesus who loves the body of Christ. And he, as our leader, does all those things, and we are his people who follow in them. So Jesus is our lead worshiper. Then last week, Pastor Tim just kind of took that a step far further, drawing out from Scripture why we give so much of our time when we gather together to singing and to hearing the word of God preached. We sing because that's what we were created for. We sing because when we do that, we extol the majesty of God. And and there are many ways that people can do that. People can worship in all kinds of ways. But if you look At the Bible, if you look at the history of the church, and if you just take the experiences of people, what you will find is singing has always been one of the most definitive ways that God has called and shaped his people in worship. Think about this. What's more like heaven on earth than us joining our voices together to praise God? I think the answer is nothing. There is nothing more like heaven on earth than when we come together and sing the praise of God. And then the reason we hear preaching is because although we will one day be in heaven, we're not there yet. So there's a meshing together of heaven and earth when we worship. We sing like we will in heaven and we hear the preaching of God's word because we're not there yet. What we need right now is to be encouraged and we need to be built up in our faith. And the way that we're built in faith is by hearing the word of God. So Romans chapter 10 builds this really heavy duty chain for us. It says that we, if you're a Christian, are strengthened in faith and faith comes to us by hearing the word of God. And then it says, building out that chain, that you hear the word of God when people follow God's call to preach it. So our faith is built up by our hearing of the word of God, especially the preached word of God. And here's what I'll argue. Not just because I do this, but because I really do believe this is biblical. Next to your personal Bible reading, a regular diet of hearing the preaching of God's word like this. The preaching of hearing God's word in the local church is the most important practice for every believer. Again, it's not just because this is what I do. This is all over the New Testament. Small group Bible studies are great. Using your gifts to serve other people is really important. By all means, get together and pray a lot. But next to your own Bible reading, hearing the word of God rightly divided, which means rightly opened, rightly distributed, is the most important tool 
for the building up of our faith that God gives us. You won't do anything more important this week than come here to sing together and hear the word of God. 172 hours in the week, this is the most important. So at the center of everything we do because of all of these things is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is the good news that lost, poor, hopeless, dead sinners are given not just help, but new life by the mercy of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So when we sing, we sing of the gospel. When we preach, we only preach the gospel. We preach that Jesus Christ willingly subjected himself to the cross, and in doing that, he earned the right to take our sin and our place in punishment, and then we extol, we magnify God, because on the other side of the cross, Jesus earned the privilege of seeing that sin thrown as far as the east is from the west, and he, like he is our lead worshiper, he is the one who leads us into new life. And fellow Christians, that's such joyous news that we should absolutely delight in it daily. We should come together and celebrate it weekly, and it should be the anthem of our lives. It's that good. That's why every Lord's Day, what we do is retell the gospel. We do one thing here. We only do one thing here. We tell one story over and over and over again. And if we're ever not telling that story, rebuke us because we are in error. So last week was how the gospel comes out of our mouths. Singing and preaching. Titled that, they're all S's, very clever, very clever people. The title of that was The Gospel Sung and Spoken. And this week is the gospel displayed and the gospel experience. Now we do the things that we're talking about this morning a little bit less, in fact quite a bit less, than singing and preaching. But for that reason they take on a special significance when we do them. So last week was the gospel sung and spoken. This week is the gospel seen and savored. We're talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper, or sometimes we call it communion. So if you're not there already, let's open the Bible to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, we're going to start at verse 37. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. We'll end there 
be in a lot of places this morning. I'm going to read a lot of other things for you. You don't have to flip around to all the other places we'll go. But let me just kind of get us oriented here. So this, this is very near to what would be considered the beginning of the Christian church. The book of Acts begins with the resurrected Jesus still among his followers. He's on earth. And after he gives them some final instructions, he ascends to heaven before he does that, he gives them two promises, really kind of a twofold promise. Part one is he's ascending to heaven, but one day he will return. So we now live in between his first coming and his second coming. He will come back one day. The second part of his promise is that while he waits in heaven, he will send the Holy Spirit who will seal and help and empower believers to take the gospel from where they were in Jerusalem. It would start there, and it would go all over the earth. And what Peter and others are doing is the very first step in sending the gospel to the ends of the earth. So there are thousands of people who've come to Jerusalem to celebrate a festival. They've traveled great distances, and while they're there, the Holy Spirit comes upon these early believers, and they begin to preach the good news of Jesus in languages that they themselves didn't even speak. It's a miraculous event. Some people there that are gathered, their crowd forms, they're amazed, and they're receptive to what they're hearing. And other people are scared and they're confused, and they do what scared and confused people do, and they begin to mock what's happening. So they say, look at these guys, they're all drunk, they're all loaded. And Peter then gets up, commands their attention, and says, it's only the morning, they're not drunk. And then he preaches one of the greatest evangelistic messages of all time. And he calls every man, woman, and child there to repentance and faith in Christ. And what we started reading was just at the tail end of that evangelistic message. And here's the thing we can learn from this. There are always going to be people indifferent or even hostile to the gospel when it's preached. You will not always find a great hearing with people. But we can also be sure that when and where the gospel is preached, because he promises that there are people out there who he intends to save, God will use the preaching of his word to save people. And here, many people, thousands of people are convicted of their sin. They realize their need to be saved. And so they say, what do we do? If this is true, this is true. What do we do? And then Peter says, in response to this, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus which is exactly what Jesus told the apostles to say. So the clearest place to understand what it is that we're supposed to do with baptism is at the end of Matthew in the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, this is again right before, very, very quickly before, very shortly before his ascension, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So the first step in following what Jesus told his disciples to do is to call people to faith in him, to repent of their sin. And then Jesus says, baptize them 
into the abundant and everlasting life of the triune God. And then once they're brought into God's family, teach them the, the family culture and the family way. So the three parts there, there, there's three things that Jesus basically says to do. Call people to repentance and faith, baptize them, and teach them to obey the commands of Christ. We do parts one and three every week. So we are regularly, every week, calling people to faith and repentance, and we're we're teaching the commands of Christ. What we want to do is look more specifically at that second part, which we don't do all the time, just teaching people and calling people to being baptized. So what is baptism and and, and why do we do it? Uh, Here's a simple definition of baptism that I'm working with this morning. This is not the most theologically rich definition of baptism. It's not what I would call an all-encompassing definition of baptism. It's just what I want to work with for a few minutes this morning. Baptism is a visual representation of a person's union with Christ marking him or her out from the world done in response to the Great Commission. So let me just read that again because definitions are important. Baptism is a visual representation, so it's a picture of a person's union with Christ whereby they are marking themselves out from the world and it's done in response, in obedience to the commands of Christ, particularly in the Great Commission. So when I say that, God, that baptism is a visual representation of the gospel, I'm thinking of probably Romans 6, 3, and 4 the most. There Paul writes, All of us who've been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when a person enters the baptismal waters, they're saying they've died with Christ. When they come up out of the water, they're saying they've been raised with Christ. They are united to him. The death he died, he died for their sin. He was resurrected, so they will be resurrected. And they're also saying, now I'm living a new kind of life. The old life I was living, I was living according to the pattern of the world, but I'm not living that way anymore. They're saying I'm bearing the fruit of repentance, and the Spirit is shaping me, so I bear the fruit of the Spirit. They're saying I'm no longer hostile to God, I'm at peace with God. Somebody who is baptized is saying I'm following the commands of Christ to live a holy life to walk in love for God and to love other people. So when we ask the question, questions, really, what is baptism and why do we do it? The, the answer is that baptism is an action for people who are already, this is really important, already believers, and they want to, the world to know that they follow Jesus. Now that may be, I just want to address this really quick, that may be different from what you were taught at earlier points in your life or even 
what you were taught after you became a Christian. First of all, you should know that was the case for me. I was baptized as an infant, not long after my birth. But, but here's what I believe. As well-meaning as my parents were, I don't believe that that, that kind of baptism was the baptism that Jesus had in mind in the Great Commission. Even the Greek word for baptize means to immerse. And so I was baptized again. Call it baptized again. You could also just say I was really baptized. I was immersed to celebrate my union with Christ and my public identification with him, with his life and death, after I became a believer. So I, want to, I just want to say a word to people who grew up in traditions where, where infant baptism was practiced. Uh, I, I'm certain, actually, that almost every person in this room has a friend or a family member who's still in one of those traditions right now. So while I'm convinced uh, that what I've just laid out for you is, is consistent with what both Jesus and the apostles had in mind, uh, I believe it is possible to be a faithful Christian and to reach a different conclusion on the timing and the mode of baptism. But the reality, there's a reality that the reality that is where that's happening, it represents such a different understanding of what baptism is that, that faithful believers are sort of disagreeing about the very nature of it. And so absolutely, it's absolutely possible to come to a different conclusion on this but the reality is that we, we can't really practice both kinds of baptism in our churches because the understanding of it is so different that we need to do our best to search the scriptures, to understand what Jesus and, and the apostles meant and were teaching, and then to, by faith, proceed that way. But we can also affirm this is what we'd call a second-order doctrine. and something that we should hold humbly to the point that, that I am confident that many dear brothers and sisters in Christ who are today baptizing their infants will be together with all of us in heaven, and this thing will be but a memory for us. So if other friends and family practice this differently than you do, that is okay. But here, it begs the question, who in our church should be baptized? And this is how I'm going to answer this. Before I say this one too, there's just kind of some teaching, there's just kind of some, some work that we need to do with this this morning. I want to know that actually a lot of you, I, I've had lots of conversations re- recently on this, are right here. So you're either deciding on whether or not you should be baptized or you're a parent and your child has expressed an interest in baptism and you're wondering how to shepherd your child through this. And so I'm going to throw out a few things, but I want you to know a a number of things in this. Uh, Number one, always know this. I love you. I love you. It's the joy of my life next to being a a husband and a dad to be your pastor. So I love you. I always want to talk with you. I'm always open to talking with you about these things. Uh, it's impossible for me to touch on just every, the particulars of every situation. There's always exceptions to every rule. And so if, if, you, if you hear me say something, you're like, well, that doesn't apply to me, or I think that's different for me, by all means, let's talk about that. 
And then I, I actually don't have, there's, if you think, well, you may, maybe he's talking to me. I'm not talking to anybody specifically in the room. These are just general things. I have to speak often in generalities up here. It's just too, it's too difficult to speak in, into too many particulars. So here's my answer to who should be baptized in obedience to Christ and his word. Here's my answer to this. Any believer who has independently repented of sin and professes faith in Christ, who is following the commands of Jesus in a way that would be evident to a variety of members of the church and is ready to take responsibility for their own faith and wishes to declare that they are marked out for Jesus should be baptized. I need to say that again because it was a mouthful and it was a lot just like the definition. So let me just say it one more time. Any believer who's independently repented of their sin and professes faith in Christ, who is following the commands of Jesus in such a way that it would be evident to a variety of church members who's ready to take responsibility for their own faith and wishes to declare that they are marked out by Jesus, that person should be baptized. I want you to notice very clearly that infants can't do that. If you were baptized as an infant like me, I love you. But if you have not been baptized as a follower of Christ, you're not fitting that definition. You're not fitting that explanation that I just gave. If you want to talk more about this, Pastor Tim and I would have almost no greater thrill than to talk and have a conversation with you about this. So let me give you first a little good news and then maybe a little little bad. Uh, There's a tendency when people hear a sermon like this to get baptized. Uh, I want that if you're united and and you're ready to take that step. Uh, The bad news really quick is we don't have any more room on Easter. We, uh, we, they're, they're, God is doing such a great work that we have plenty of people already. There's just a practical reality. We want to give, we want baptisms to be special for you. We want you to be able to give your testimony. We want to be able to, be able to interact with you in the water over that. We want this to be something that will be memorable for you. There's just a practical reality. We can only do so many of those and we're kind of full up for Easter. We'll get another time. But if you're going, oh, I want to do Easter. I've heard about Easter. Sorry, we're, we're full. Um, there, there are some of you, that, there are, some of you that, that are already locked in and praise the Lord. We're going to have great baptisms on Easter. I will find another time soon. So here's the thing. I could give a whole sermon on baptism. We just need to move on to the Lord's Supper. Uh, so let, let's do this. Where baptism is a one time. You only get baptized once. You only get baptized one time as a picture, a visual representation of the gospel, the Lord's Supper is something we do regularly to remember the substitutionary atonement of Christ. So 1 Corinthians 11.23. Let's talk about what it is that we're doing when we're taking the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when Paul writes this, what he's referring back to is this meal beginning with Jesus. 
on the night that he was betrayed, which is the day before he went to the cross, he ate the Passover meal, the traditional Jewish Passover with his disciples. And what he did during that meal is he took a celebration of something that God did that pointed long ago to the past for these people, he took that and now gave it something that has infinitely more significance, where now this meal for Christians reminds us of something that God not just did at one point in the past, but God continues to do over and over again, and it actually points us to something that he's still doing and one day will complete in the future. So he took the Jewish Passover and he made it something far more. And the key word that he told us in doing that is to remember. It says twice there, do this in remembrance of me. So we just ask, what are we supposed to remember? What has Jesus done? First thing he says is I've given my body to be broken for you. Isaiah 53, 5 is key for both of these. There it says the Messiah would be crushed for our iniquities. He would bear chastisement so that we could have peace. And he would be wounded so we could be healed. That's what Jesus meant when he said to remember his broken body. The God who took on flesh, who lived sinlessly, would now allow his body to be broken so that we who deserved to actually be crushed could be spared. It's the first thing we remember. Then he said, remember his blood. Again, Isaiah 53, 5. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Before Jesus went to the cross, his flesh was ripped open and blood came pouring out as he was whipped. And then while he hung on the cross, to make sure that he was really dead, the spear was shoved into his side. The point of that was to pierce the sack around the protective sack around his heart that is filled with water and blood. And so when that spear went into his side, that mixture of blood and water came pouring out. We remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And this is what Hebrews tells us is happening. Hebrews 10. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Jesus Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So that what we're to remember is where once continual sacrifices were necessary, a never-ending stream of sacrifices were necessary that never really dealt with sin. Jesus has now provided the once and for all sacrifice, not of an animal, but of himself, And now there is no more sacrificing that is necessary. The blood of Jesus covers sin. 
And in Hebrews, that's why it says Jesus can sit down. Did you catch that earlier? Priests stand daily at their service. They have to stand there because it's going to be time for another sacrifice soon. Jesus is done, so he can go sit down. He's the great high priest who sat down at the right hand of God because the work is finished. And so when we celebrate communion, we're remembering Christ and his sacrifice. When you see the bread and you eat it, when you see the juice and you drink it, know that Jesus has given himself to you completely. There's nothing more substantial than for Jesus to say, not just take something, actually take me. I will feed you. I will sustain you. We need to eat and drink to live. Jesus said, I'm even more important than your food or water. And I offer you something better than that food or drink. I offer you me. I'm living water that quenches thirst and never runs out. I'm food that will satisfy you, but you can never, ever be full of. There's always more of me, and I give it to you freely. And so like baptism then, if that's what the Lord's Supper does, let's ask the questions about the Lord's Supper. Who should take the Lord's Supper and how should it be taken? Because of what it represents, it's clear only believers should take communion. This is, it's not a cultural practice. It's not a rite of passage that you achieve at a certain age or a certain grade or after you take a class. Only believers should take the Lord's Supper. And the second part of that answer is only believers who've prepared themselves should take communion. Back in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, whoever takes the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner will be guilty of diminishing not just that action, but the very sacrifice of Jesus. And so he says, examine yourselves. That examination comes in two parts. First, we ask, are we walking with the Lord? Second, are we loving and united with the body of Christ, other Christians? So to ask if you're walking with the Lord is not the same thing as to say, am I living flawlessly? That's the whole point of the gospel. You're not perfect. You're not holy. You're a sinner. And you need Jesus, and he's given himself to you so fully that you can take. He says, take my very body, take my very blood. And we have these elements that represent those things. And so, and he says, take them and remember, do this often enough so that you never forget me. Even for a single second. So what we should be concerned about is, is not, well, I'm not flawless. Folks, nobody is. That's the whole point of the good news of Christ is that you're, you're such a sinner that only the shed blood of Jesus is sufficient to pay for your, the penalty of your sin. So everybody who takes the Lord's Supper is unworthy of Christ. But what we should be concerned about is asking, are there significant, ongoing areas of unconfessed sin that you refuse to repent from? And if those exist, you shouldn't take communion not because you're not perfect, but because if you have significant areas of unconfessed sin, I don't know if you're a believer. I'm just going to be honest with you. If there are significant areas of sin that you know about, 
and you're withholding from repentance, it's not about communion for you. It's about your soul. It's about your salvation. That's how serious this is. And then there's this, the second part that we need to ask when we examine ourselves. Is am I at peace with other believers? Paul says, just really simply, if something has come between you and another Christian, this can wait. Christ has reconciled you to God. When you were lost, he found you. When you were dead, he made you alive. And now you've been redeemed. So surely whatever has come between you and another believer shouldn't stand up for that long. So before you celebrate that you've been reconciled to God, make sure you're reconciled to one another, which is surely a lower tier, a lower order division. So go and make that right. He says this, he says, before you take communion, if you're divided from another believer, just go be reconciled to one another and then come and take communion. Then come and take the Lord's Supper. So that should be our priority. Asking, examining our heart. Are we living and bearing the fruit of repentance? And are we united as far as it can be for us? with other believers. And I don't mean to cause doubt in this. And so if you have questions, if you need some spiritual encouragement, I'd be, I'd be happy to offer that. There's so much more I could say about these things. Uh, if, if you need guidance, talk to myself or, or, or Pastor Tim. We, we, these, these things are, are weighty and serious and let's treat them that way. But let's pursue them together for the, the glory of God. And my pastoral concern is that you would miss out on so much of the beauty of Christ and, and, and walking with him simply because you've just never come and, and asked. Simply because you, you've just never come and, and, and sought out a, a time to talk about these things. So let's do that. If you have questions, if you're concerned, let's, just, let's, let's talk together. I'm also equally concerned about not thinking enough about these things. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are meant to assure us and nourish us. So let's not treat them like we grab a burger at a drive-thru. And let's not treat them like something that's so small. Well, I'll just get baptized. That way I'll appease some family or friends. Let's really understand how the gospel is seen, how the gospel's experienced, how the gospel is renewed when we take the Lord's Supper, and, and how it's proclaimed when we witness baptisms. Praise God for these precious gifts. These are great things for believers, and so when we come together to do them, let's do that joyously, let's do it seriously, and for the glory of God, let's do it often. Let's pray together. God, may our church be strengthened in faith when we lift our voices together and hear the word. And then on those less frequent occasions, when we see people who have been united to Christ showing us a picture of that, when we take your body and bread, which you've given to us so fully in the blood. 
May that nourish us and sustain us and refresh us. And may we never forget it. It seems like, well, how could we? But God, it's so easy. We do it every day and we forget Christ. And so we remember, maybe remember often. Thanks for your faithfulness. Thanks for your grace. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.